Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon. This week we have Golf Magazine and Golf.com's senior writer, Alan Shipnuck, on the podcast to just kind of button up what happened a couple of weeks ago at Augusta National, his experiences writing Tiger and winning in 2019, where it ranks uh, in events he's covered over the years, and just what it means going forward, how much focus we should give it, how much we should be leaning on other events, other players, and everything else as we kind of gear towards the next major championship. And, of course, we at Fox gear towards the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. So great conversation. We went fairly long, so I'm going to get right to it. Before I get to it, I'm excited to share with you exclusive opportunity from Titleist to be a part of and to join Team Titleist. Team Titleist gives you access to opportunities like prototype testing, special events, limited edition gear from Titleist, and so much more. And I urge you to sign up and join Team Titleist at www.titleist.com slash Team Titleist. That's one word, Team Titleist. And it's more than just a name. It's a community of golfers just like you and me. It's created a community in Titleist that connects people to product experts, host events, and provides opportunities like those testings of prototype golf balls and clubs. I had a chance to be a part of a Team Titleist event last year, and I loved it. I mean, these are people that love golf. And if you go to the forum there, once you sign up and just read some of the chats, I did at AMA a month ago, and, uh, and I love to jump in there and just see what people are chatting about. So go to Titleist.com slash Team Titleist. Sign up, uh, and you can be a part of Team Titleist as well. And with that... We will get right to him, Alan Shipnup, next up here in the clubhouse. And we welcome back in the clubhouse Alan Shipnup, senior writer for Golf Magazine, and a man who uh, decided to add a new family member uh, this week. Uh, having a dog is just the best, and uh, and you went golf name with the dog, didn't you? <laughs> uh, little Monty. Well, it depends whether you ask me or my eldest daughter, the origin of the name. I, I feel like I planted the seed. She claims it was her idea. I think we're going to have to let the historians sort this out. But yes, I, um, I, it definitely completes the the all-time greatest PR turnaround. You know, Colin Montgomery, he was the goon from Troon, and, and now he's, uh, he's inspiring these cute little Springer Spaniels uh, names. So I'm gonna give I'm gonna give him credit, whether or not it's valid. Uh, I'll let my daughter decide. You know, is golf? We'll get into this with Tiger, and and you just answered some questions about kind of post scandal in your latest mailbag. I urge people to go read it. It was great. Um, you know, Tiger's one of those guys that is massively rooted for. You mentioned Montgomery, a guy that was kind of hated for a while, and now seems to walk around the golf course with a smile on his face. I had Nick Faldo on last week you know, to kind of recap the Masters. And Nick Faldo is a guy that went through this same type of thing. I mean, if you think about Beth Page Black and wearing the FDNY hats, and it seemed to be, he seemed to really engage with the fans. Is golf the the sport that allows players to come back more than any other sport out there? Because I feel like it has to be golf. I mean, certainly the longevity is part of it. You know, I don't see Russell Westbrook uh, playing into his mid-40s like, like Tiger with a chance to change his public perception and, and our feelings towards him. So it's just such a long arc um, of, of a playing career, and that certainly helped Tiger. I mean, if he had walked away from the game when he was 33, drenched in scandal, we'd have much different feelings about him in his career. So... Uh, and Colin Montgomery kind of made his, his comeback from a PR standpoint in his 50s. So um, there's really nothing like this game as far as giving players a chance to reinvent themselves, uh, you know, move through the cycles of life from a you know, cocky phenom to a grandfather and everything in between. So I, I think you're right. Golf is sort of a unique vehicle for image rehabilitation. Yeah, I mean, T Tiger is the. I mean, Tiger's the best example of this. I mean, if when you and, and I wanted to have you on because I was going to talk uh, Tiger. I hope people aren't obviously exhausted by Tiger chat at this point, but I wanted to look at it more from kind of twenty thousand feet of what we just saw. You know, you were out there covering the event. You've covered enormous events. You know, throughout your career. I just wanted to start with this. When you look back on the twenty nineteen Masters and what comes with it. Uh, we have no idea what's going to happen going forward with Tiger's career. If he passes Jack, for goodness sakes, if he wins another major, who knows? And frankly, to me, who cares? This is kind of a pinnacle moment in the sport for this guy who had completely lost his golf game and now wins the Masters against this new crop of players. Where does it rank for you in golf events you've covered in your career? 
Well, as far as the the overall significance and, and the explosion of emotion that surrounded it, I mean, it, it's got to be at the very top. Just w- what it meant to, to so many people, and what it means to golf history, and of course, what it means to Tiger himself, who's you know reinvented the sport and his image over the last quarter century. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't an artistic triumph, right? I mean, um, the the back nine was actually kind of. Um, Everyone fell away, made some critical mistakes. Tiger kind of cruised home, made a bogey on the last hole, and it didn't hurt him. You know, this was not like Phil's walk-off birdie putt or, or some other super incredible finishes that we've seen from just standard of play. But ultimately, no one really is going to care or remember that. I mean, it's all about um, just the feeling on the ground and being being a witness to history. And even people who are just at home who are so moved by it. I mean, the you could, if you were following social media, as I'm sure you were, you, you know, whether it was Michael Jordan or Serena Williams or NFL players, uh, you know, down the list, um, and of course, just casual fans, people were so moved by this, and that's ultimately, you know, what it's about. I mean, we, we're we're not writing about birdies and bogeys, we're, we're writing about people, and that's that what that's what makes the victories meaningful. Um, you know, what do you remember from the 97 Masters? Can you remember one single shot? No, you remember the hug with Earl. I mean, that's, that's what – it was this culmination of this journey and this dream. And, you know, what are we going to remember about, about this Masters? Maybe that shot Tiger hit on 16, but it's going to be the hug with Charlie. You know, that's what's going to endure as well. And so, um, you know, from a, from a human perspective, from, a, from just the, the, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey – Shakespearean drama, Greek tragedy, however you want to frame it. I mean, there's really nothing like what we've seen with Tiger in the last uh, decade and and even obviously before that. So uh, it, it wasn't the most exciting Masters I've been to. You know, rarely is a guy going to go out without the lead, shoot 70 with a, with a star-set leaderboard and actually win, which is what Tiger did. But um, again, that sort of takes a backseat to the, the larger meaning of, of the breakthrough for him. And, and of course, now it sets up this intrigue going forward. I mean, um, is, is he going to resume this ascent up Mount Nicholas, or is this just going to be kind of an incredible exclamation point? Um, uh, we don't know, but it certainly makes the next you know three to five years a lot more intriguing as well. Yeah, I always judge this stuff, Ship, when I look at back at an event. You know, it's been almost two weeks, and, you know, you've got – You've got this this you know bigger than golf moment that happens on the bigger than golf stage that is the Masters. You know it's kind of the lone event that's going on in sports outside of some early playoffs in the NHL and NBA, and it's kind of the perfect storm for golf to be in the forefront of sport. And I mean, here's the people that have mentioned it to me: my dentist, the lady that cleaned my teeth before my dentist came in. I had someone at a doctor's office bring it up to me. I've had random people that I just had a golf hat on, you know, checking out at a grocery store or at a gas station, say, man, did you watch the Masters a week and a half ago? I mean, that is where I think of it. You you made a great point. It wasn't great golf. It wasn't some fantastic Nicholas 65 or 30 on the back or anything like that. It was the win and the moment. I was with Andy Johnson at Augusta kind of watching it unfold as it goes down. And, I mean, I'm sure you have a moment where it was going to happen where you thought to yourself, holy crap, he's actually going to win this thing. Maybe it was 15, maybe it was 16. And Andy and I were talking about how tough it would be to write this moment because it was such a big moment that how can you find perspective to put a pen to paper and make sense of this? And you were one of the few names that we brought up of guys that could handle the moment. Do you feel that added pressure knowing how big this is going to be, how many eyeballs are going to be on these stories, how what you write will live alongside the Tiger win in 2019 for years and years to come? Is it a bigger moment for you when you know that's going to come with it? Yeah, of course. You could feel that stress in the press in the press room on Sunday. Um, you know, Jimmy Breslin, he was he was like this great old newspaper guy in, in New York, and he always had this, this saying about the bigger the moment – um, the smaller the story, like f- find find a little detail. Like he famously, after JFK's assassination, he interviewed the guy and wrote his whole column about <laughs> the the grave digger who actually had to dig the hole in the ground where they were going to put Kennedy's casket. And um, so, so and that's even become more so now where um, the global audience is tuned in, and you're not you're not telling it people they don't things they don't already know if, if you're just recounting the victory. I mean, we all saw it. We've relived the highlights. We've watched it on masters.com. So, you know, the challenge is, is to tell people stuff they don't know and take them places they haven't been and, and bring a different kind of perspective. So 
for, you know, for the story I wound up writing for, for golf.com, uh, I kind of told it to the eyes of other players. I was just, I was just hung out in the players locker room at Augusta national and, and watch the finish with them and try to capture their excitement and their perspective. And, um, you know, it turned it out, turned out to be a fun story that, that I think, um, people enjoyed, but it's a, it's a little different charge. You know, when, when I was writing the, the game story for, for sports illustrated for 20 plus years, then it was, it, it was kind of a larger story in that this was really the only thing we were going to do about this tournament. So you had to capture everything. Whereas now, you know, for, we had 10 people writing on deadline for, uh, for golf.com on Sunday at the masters. So the challenge was to find a different kind of story. I mean, uh, Bamberger and I, we, we take turns, on, you know what we called the gamer for uh, for the website. This, he was doing the Masters. I'll do the U.S. Open, and so he was kind of he was kind of writing the, the Tiger wins re- redemption story, which a lot of people you know were writing. And so my my, my task was to find a different way in. Um, so it, the focus has changed a little bit, and uh, you know, I, actually <laughs> speaking of the dentist, I was there yesterday, and so I finally I finally read Michael Rosenberg's SI story. Uh, you know, he's, he's sort of taken over the beat after Michael and I left for um, Michael Bamberger and I left for Golf Magazine, and so I mean, it's interesting. It, it's it's a challenge to have something that's going to hold up, you know, for two weeks, and that that has some immediacy, but also uh, captures a larger sweep and, and the bigger meaning of it all. So uh, I, I was as I enjoyed reading his story. I'm not sure I've done it the same way, but. Uh, so yeah, it, I mean to, to answer your question, everyone feels it. You know, I'm sure Jim Nance was feeling it coming down the stretch. Like, wow, this is—they're going to be showing these replays for as long as golf is played. I better get this right. Um, and you know, he made an interesting choice just to kind of recede into the background on the last hole. I thought that was cool. Um, but maybe he swallowed the whistle. You know, <laughs> he might have been overwhelmed himself. Um, I mean, he's a pro, but we all feel it. Um, and there was there was some some chortling in in the press room about. Well, if Dan Jenkins was still here, this certainly would have killed him, you know, um, because he had he had a rocky relationship with Tiger, and um, he was not his biggest fan. And um, so, anyway, yeah, it, we're all we're all humans. We all feel uh, we all feel the uh, the magnitude of the moment, and but that's what's fun. I mean, that that, that adrenaline that, uh, that 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 fuels you on deadline. I mean, that that's one of the best parts of the job, even though it's one of the hardest. Yeah, I mean, can you remember two? years in a row where you wrote different stories i mean if you think about what you wrote last year at the masters versus this year i mean it is night and day for what you're putting down after a masters win i'm not sure we will ever see a bigger disparity from 2018 patrick reed winning and famously there are people kind of grumbling even some of the members potentially grumbling about what was going down to 2019 where every single human watching got up out of their seat, maybe got emotional, whatever happened with Tiger finally doing this. I just I couldn't even start to think of two contrasting uh, major victories in a row at the same major. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, Patrick Reed was not the people's champion. I mean, <laughs> I was standing behind the green when, when, he, when he tapped in to, to finish off that win, and it was kind of this awkward, polite applause. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, yeah, there was – I was in the clubhouse earlier on the back nine. There was green jackets clustered around the TV, and you could feel them rooting against him. Like, oh, we don't want this guy to be an honorary member for life. Like, um, so yeah, it, it was a different vibe. But uh, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, I mean, maybe Patrick Reed is, is going to save a drowning puppy, and maybe he's going to. Um, who knows <laughs> he's what he's going to do? Just waiting for his story. That's right. He may become a beloved figure in the game. It's not too late for him. I mean, his transgressions compared to Tiger's are so minor when you think about it, um, and yet how different public opinion is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's wild. But um, so yeah, I mean, it, the Masters always delivers something. I mean, think about—you um, know—the year that Danny Willett won. I mean, that was that was a crazy feeling in the air, just um, with the way the way Spieth just completely. Um, lost the plot there on the back nine, and um, there's something always happens at Augusta. I mean, Trevor Immelman, that was a boring victory. <laughs> I, I can't remember too many since then. You know, <laughs> Schwarzel may not be the most exciting uh, champion, but that was an absolutely incredible day. And then he birdied the last four holes. I mean, you have to give him his due. Um, but I mean, like in 2011, when when he won, eight guys had a share of the lead on Sunday. It was incredible fireworks. So. 
you don't always get the champion you want, but it's it's um, it's usually a memorable day. And um, you know, this time around, it wasn't a memorable day per se, but we got the champion we wanted, and it certainly put a huge charge in, in the golf world. Well, following the Masters, uh, you uh, you got kind of approached on social media by some PGA Tour players. I feel like they've just come at you these days. I saw Lee Westwood and Justin Thomas, just to name a couple, that retweeted something you'd said prior to the Masters. Your point was, I think, missed. Your point was, this is a guy that's the favorite to win, who's won once over the last six years and hadn't won a major forever and hasn't really played well at the Masters. And I think your point was more that the odds were silly, not the fact that Tiger might actually win this thing was silly. I'll tell you this, Alan, I was on uh, TV shows uh, on FS1 saying I thought Tiger had no chance, so I was right there in the same boat as you. Why do you feel like these guys are using you these days? Is this kind of punching bag? Is it just because you're not scared to put yourself out there? Well, that's part of it. I mean, you know, if if you just put out safe, boring, tepid tweets, you're never going to get any blowback. Obviously, <laughs> I I have always been a little edgier, and um, I mean, the whole medium was designed for for uh, conversation and for for debate. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, there are a lot of point misters out there. Some of them have PGA Tour cards, and some of them are, are caddies between the ropes. They don't, they're not, they're not very good with subtlety. Um, so then you get you know, you get some of some of that blowback, but I mean, it is what it is. I find it amusing, and you know, as you say, that the the people didn't really understand the comment. Maybe I, maybe I could have written it slightly differently, but um, my general attitude is it's only Twitter. I don't try very hard on Twitter. Like it's just it's just for fun. You just throw things out there and see what happens, and uh, sometimes uh, sometimes it, it turns into like a thing. For better or for worse, I mean, I, one thing I've I've realized is, you know, Lee Westwood and and Justin Thomas. Unfortunately, I don't think they're clicking on my real stories. Like, did they read my my Sunday Night Dispatch from the Masters? Have, have they read any of the big features I've put up on Twitter in the last you know, x number of years? I kind of doubt it. So, they, you know, they 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 see kind of the snarky side, um, and they don't really delve into the more meaningful work, which is what I actually care about. So. I'm I'm gonna start like just dialing back my Twitter just because it's it's become a distraction from what I care about, which is the actual journalism I produce. Um, but you know that that was that the reaction to that tweet was just one indication of Tiger mania, like right. just this this feeling like people are so invested in his story and his success that if if you if you cast in any doubt about him at any point along the way, there was like this, this mob violence where they, they had to make you aware of what you had said in the past. But I mean, that's why that was part of the whole just avalanche of emotion was this was unlikely. I mean, the, the odds were against Tiger in every possible way. And even though he'd won the tour championship and he had, he'd contend the last two majors, uh, it was still an unlikely victory. Um, given, you know, his star-crossed history at Augusta National since they made the changes to the course, the fact he hadn't been driving the ball that well. Um, you know, he produced one of the greatest driving weeks of his career, and that really fueled the victory. Um, so if he, can keep, if he can keep putting the you know, hitting it off the tee like that, he's going to be right there at Bethpage and, and Royal Portrush, too. I mean, those are big, brawny golf courses. Or was it just one of those, um, it was just a magical week where it came together, and I mean, what, one of my big critiques about Tiger, even in that tweet, was was questioning his putting, which you know, as we know, in the strokes gained, he's he's middle of the pack on tour now, and he really, I mean, he he didn't make a meaningful putt on on Sunday at the Masters after the third hole. Uh, I mean, that that lag on nine was gorgeous, but it didn't go in, and um, you know, it was it was really he won that with his ball striking, which you can do at the Masters, but it's not easy to do. And, right. Um, you know, he took you know, his three birdies in the back nine were all tap-ins. It was, uh, we still don't know if Tiger can will to put the ball into the hole the way he has to under pressure. And he kind of, because everyone fell away the, in, the, in the manner that they did, he just kind of cruised. And, uh, you know, it's still an incredible victory. I'm not taking away from it in any, in any fashion. But uh, if he's going to really 
be a consistent contender in the majors, he's going to have to make more putts. And I mean, we saw it at, at Carnoustie, you know, that, that eight footer he had for bogey on the 11th hole on Sunday, that was the defining moment of his tournament. He missed it. And, uh, you know, took double and that was, that was a big part of why he didn't win that tournament. So, um, there's still some question marks, but it, this is maybe not the time for it. We're still in celebration mode, right. and we're we're looking ahead. To, we're looking ahead to Beth Page and the Grand Slam, and just let everyone be excited, and we'll just see how it all plays out. Wanted to take a quick break to let you know about Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, cryptos, all commission free. And while other brokerages charge up to ten bucks for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started so you can start investing at any level the simple and intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike and you can view easy to understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone you can also view stock collections such as things like 100 most popular and with Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio discover new stocks track your favorite companies and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest Robinhood is giving listeners of the clubhouse a free stock free like apple ford or sprint to help you build your portfolio you can sign up at clubhouse.robinhood.com that's clubhouse.robinhood.com all right back to alan what I find so interesting about Backlash, and you got you got kind of dragged through it at the Ryder Cup because you wrote a piece basically saying, you know, the U.S. team is more talented, which, again, what I don't think people understand with predictions is everybody does them. I mean, journalists do them just like the everyman does them. And if you're saying Tiger's not going to win the Masters, it's not like you're saying Tiger can't win the Masters. You're just saying that you don't believe that where he's at with his current golf game and the rest of the competition out there you don't foresee a victory, and it's almost like predictions are taken personally. I saw it happen in the in the in the Portland series. I saw a whole bunch of people coming at NBA experts that that picked Oklahoma City, going, "You guys don't know anything," and you're saying, "Listen, when I look at these two teams on paper, I think Oklahoma City is going to win, and if they don't don't win, that's okay too. I, it's not you know it's not necessarily hurting your feelings or, or or crushing your credibility. You're just making a prediction based on intelligence, and I mean. With Tiger going into that week, and I mentioned it on a couple of couple of shows and radio things I was on, you know, he was in the 200s in three-putt avoidance. And at Augusta, we know people three-putt a lot, you know. So, I mean, if this is a guy that's struggling to get the ball in the hole from lag distances, this isn't the place you're going to quote-unquote find it, and somehow he was able to do so. So I just find it funny that people are coming, that came at you about something that, again, it's not like you're going, I don't think Tiger's going to win, and I hate the guy. You know, it's not that's not yeah. the point there. Well, I mean that that's sports. You know, fans are passionate. That's what makes it fun. So, uh, if if they weren't paying attention and they didn't care about any of this stuff, that we'd probably collectively have a problem, right? I mean, <laughs> um, it's you know the Ryder Cup took on a life of its own, and it was I certainly was fan of the Flames. Once you're all in on a prediction like that, you just have to ride it yeah, out. So, I mean, I, I you just got to keep going. But <laughs> even you know the problem is I made that a year out, and then a lot of things changed with. Um, you know, no one had heard of Tommy Fleetwood when I wrote that first column. He became a world-class player. Francesco Molinari became a different player. Um, you know, Spieth was started struggling. Um, Patrick Reed turned radioactive. Brooks and DJ did or did not have some, you know, dust-up Ryder Cup week. Um, there's, there's, when you make a prediction a year out, that um, then it's <laughs> then it's really it's just a leap of faith. But and, I, you know, again, that was a long-term thing. Like, I, I still think the U.S. is going to win at, at Whistling Straits. That'll be two out of three. And um, demographically, they're a much younger team. So 10 years from now, that prediction may look great, but it's certainly the way the U.S. just slipped on the banana peel in, in Paris was, I mean, it was embarrassing for them. It was embarrassing for me. And whatever gloating the Euros did was, was justified because, I mean, they just, I mean, the Americans got their ass kicked, so <laughs> it is what it is. But uh, I still, you know, let's let's do a podcast in, in you know twenty twenty nine, and we'll we'll see how that that prediction's looking. God, a podcast going to be around in twenty twenty nine? That's now that is that's a prediction in and of itself from you, Mister <laughs> yeah, Shipman. Right. <laughs> sitting there I'll thinking just, I'll that. Just, I'll, 
I'll just think it and it'll be beamed into the mind of my, my followers and that's enough. I guess. Well, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. When you look at the Ryder Cup from last year, just for a moment, and you see how that golf course was set up and how much the captains have impacts on their own course at their home clubs, you look at Royal Melbourne coming up in a President's Cup where, of course, the Americans are heavy, 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 heavy favorites at every single one of these. Why wouldn't Ernie just make the fairways 12 yards wide? I mean, why wouldn't that be a similar approach, knowing that uh, the American players struggle with golf courses that look and appear like that? Yeah, he, it's too bad. I mean, from Ernie's perspective, it's too bad it's at Royal Melbourne because it's such a iconic golf course, and it's meant to be played with you know little or no rough and, and as a racetrack, just firm and fast, the ball rolling everywhere. I mean, as a golf course designer and a, a something of a purist, I think it would offend Els to to grow the rough and narrow the fairways. But you're right. I mean, that's his probably his best recipe for for victory. Just as I like get whistling straights, there's not going to be one blade of grass that's longer about an inch and a half right, on the whole right. property, um, and that's certainly going to suit the the American team. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's one of the one of the major flaws of the the, the Furyk captaincy is he didn't seem to recognize. Um, how what the playing field was going to look like. Even though he played the French Open in whatever it was, July, and had a preview, they were already growing in the rough lines. And it was, you know, everyone who'd been on the grounds then knew how the course was going to play. But he just kind of picked his favorite golfers. He didn't he didn't pick guys. You know, I, I was writing for months. He should have taken Zach Johnson as as a captain selection just based on the venue. And would he have been more effective than Phil Mickelson? I mean, obviously. Um, None of, none of this may have mattered, but um, you know certainly Thomas Bjorn um, had a had a game plan. He executed it brilliantly, and and Furyk was just kind of flailing around trying to figure it out as he went. And that was that was one of the subplots. I mean, if if the American team had 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 totally different composition from the captain selections, I mean maybe it, it would have helped. But um, you know Furyk got out captained. The 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 golf course was. Uh, the U.S. team got out set up and and then they got out executed. So it was kind of a perfect storm. But it is going to be interesting going forward at Ryder Cup and maybe President's Cup how uh, the playing fields are really going to going to change. And I, I think each team is going to be pressing its advantage instead of presenting kind of a, a neutral a neutral site it's just as far as the conditions go. I mean, um, so that that's going to be another subplot and make. That you know we can t- spend six months talking about leading up to the Ryder Cup is just the setup and and all of that and um, I mean it's fun it, it adds a whole other layer of intrigue and and decision making um, and you know I think Bjorn just made obvious what had sort of been happening subtly in the last few Ryder Cups and now it's it's just going to be a defining feature of of how the course is set up and and how the teams are, are composed. It's gonna be like eighty yard fairways every time it's in America. It's just, yeah, right. Man, this, is, this is this is the biggest fairway you've ever seen, and it's eighteen holes of it. I hope you're ready for golf. It's gonna be a you'll never see a lost ball. I, I did want to touch one more time, one more thing on Tiger, uh, just kind of as we look back and as we move forward. And uh, and I want your opinion. I mean, you've been around it. Uh, you've been around when Tiger was at his best, and you've been covering the game when Tiger was not even playing professional golf, and maybe was never gonna play again. The excitement around this, you know, we've talked about it, dentists and random people and everybody's fired up about Tiger right now and they want to talk about it and they love seeing the comeback. We are investing so much in Tiger yet again. And when we do that, we tend to forget about some of the other players that that kind of held the professional golf world together when Tiger was away and when Tiger was trying to come back and when we saw him, you know, kind of get it going, but maybe it was still iffy. Is it good or bad for us looking forward as as a professional golf medium that we're putting so much into a 43-year-old Tiger Woods and maybe forgetting a little bit about some of the guys that are going to be around in 20, 25 years? Yeah, I mean, we've just we've, we've been addicted to Tiger for more than two decades now. And it, when he's, you know, post-scandal and then with the, the injuries and the long layoffs, I mean, it did create some breathing room. And we were able to mint some new stars, whether it was Jordan Spieth, um, you know, Roy McIlroy took advantage of that, that post, the post hydrant vacuum, um, obviously Kepka the last couple of years as Tiger was, was just coming back. Um, and you know, these guys are, you know, the future of the game theoretically, but they've, they've just been relegated to such sideshows now and they know it. I mean, 
I, I saw Rory in the locker room at at the Masters. You know, he would, he was a, a non-factor. He came in and scarfed down his lunch, and he was he was walking out. And I just said, uh, you know, hey Rory, can I ask you one quick question about Tiger? He's like, that's none of my business, man. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> he was gone. He did. It's like he's like you could just see the thobble. Oh God, and I have another five years of, of Tiger right. questions. You know, <laughs> I'm I just won the players. I'm supposed to be like the player of the year, and um, everyone was excited about me. And now here we go again. Um, you know, certainly there's there's the fans like the, the Fowlers and the Justin Thomases who, who actually have been part of this comeback where they helped Tiger prepare and they helped get him game ready in just playing casual games in South Florida and chipping contests in his backyard and all that stuff and so I, I think they're 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 more equipped to deal with this mania but um, you know the players who thought they were going to own the game like Rory McIlroy, I mean, you, you can just you can just feel the weight of it. Like, oh man, it's, it's just Tiger, 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 and every press conference there's gonna be Tiger questions. Uh, he's gonna be the lead story going into every tournament this year, no matter what. And uh, you know, I mean, Rory thought he was gonna complete the career Grand Slam. He's got the he's got the the uh, the Open Championship in in Northern Ireland where he should have been the headliner and. And that's all gone now. It's just, it's just Tiger. It's all that matters. And so, uh, it's, um, but as we, you know, you know better than anyone how Tiger affects TV ratings. Right. We see it with with clicks and subscriptions. I mean, it's going to be a quite a boost to to the game. Um, you know, anecdotally, all the munis are full. All the the Bridgestone balls have sold out. I mean, people have have gotten swept up in this, and it's, it's a great short term benefit, but. You know he is 43 with a, a few spine, and um, you know there's a lot of, I mean there's a lot of miles on that odometer. He's the world's oldest 43 year old, so it's unsustainable. But I guess we've all made the collective decision. You know who cares? We're just going all in on Tiger for as long as we can, <laughs> and when he's finally gone, then we'll we'll pay attention to everybody else. And that that may be a year from now, that may be 10 years from now. Um, we'll we'll see, but. Uh, it's, you're right. I mean, we're right back to where we were at the turn of the century, where the only story is Tiger Woods. Yeah, well, and, and I think it'll be very interesting. You know, it didn't happen on this stage, even though it was close to happening. I mean, we almost saw Kepka possibly get into a playoff. I mean, I think if he'd have made that putt on, on 18, Tiger probably would have just made par on 18 and, and won anyway. But, you know, I think Kepka's obviously the one guy in this crop that doesn't seem phased by Tiger, and I say that as he obviously missed putts on 17 and 18 that were very makeable for Verdi. But I, I think it'll be important on a stage, and we've never seen this really since 1999, you know, when a young Sergio Garcia came up and it was going to be Sergio and Tiger for the next 15 years, is seeing Tiger against maybe two or three of these guys in a major championship stage on a Sunday. So when all the eyeballs are watching Tiger that come to watch Tiger and Tiger only, they also get a glimpse of, a Rory or a Justin Thomas or a Kepka or all these other names that again are going to hold the torch for 15 or 20 years. And what I love about the Rory story you told is Rory seems like the one guy that gets the most annoyed by this and maybe annoyed's the wrong word, but he seems like when he doesn't win, he doesn't want anything to do with it. You don't see him out there shaking hands. You don't see him out there giving congratulatory hugs. You know, he he just he wants to get out of there because he didn't win, and that's what he was born, if you will, to do in, in the professional rakes, and and that was what he was going to do for the last ten years once he kind of took the mantle from Tiger. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of built-in frustration there with uh, with Rory. I mean, he's had there was there was this window here, right? I mean, he after what he did in, in 2014, 15. Um, 2013. It's like, okay, here we go. Tiger's Tiger's wounded. There's no other superstar. I mean, Rory could have owned the game, and he's just been in in retreat. And um, now he's had, you know, he had enjoyed this little renaissance the first few months of the season, but um, he still can't. He can't do what Tiger can do, you know, which is win the Masters. And so, um, it's fascinating. He he kind of always has wanted to project that alpha energy, right? I mean, I, there was a whole moment. Um, at, at Valhalla when he won the PGA Championship and you know he kind of stared down Tiger and Ricky and there was this little dance they did when they were trying to finish before the dark and you know that that was Rory trying to kind of assert his dominance uh, as a you know as force of personality but it, it's nothing compared to what Tiger has right and I think Rory knows that and this is a reminder of that and it's got to be discouraging now, I'm sure 
you know, Brooks has to be kicking himself. You know, if he'd, if he'd beaten Tiger at, at the PGA and then he'd, he'd crushed his, his dreams and, and stolen this green jacket, I mean, Brooks would have been the undisputed king of the game and he would have been the alpha, right? But, which is something he clearly craves that, but um, it wasn't meant to be. And so, you know, a guy like Dustin, I don't, I don't think he's going to get too involved in it, but uh, there's, there's all these other players who I think had kind of measured themselves in some ways against the legacy of Tiger and, um, and the, the force of personality that he projected. And they wanted some of that mojo and they wanted some of that energy. And this is just a reminder that, nope, you don't have it. You're never going to get it. There's just something about this guy that, that is transcendent. And so I, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of tour players who are talking to their sports psychologists the last week and a half about what this all means and where do they fit in. And, <laughs> their team? Um, their sports yeah, their, their whole team. I mean, it, they're, they're mumbling to their track, man. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of angst out there because <laughs> Tiger just reminded them that he's the guy. He's always going to be the guy. And he has something special that they don't have. And, and that, that's got to be a little discouraging. I think mumbling to their track man should be uh, should be a podcast title. I think that is the that's the new one. Maybe some maybe some up and coming player that wants to start a podcast can do that. That's really a great line. I think that it might want be one you might want to pocket and use at some point uh, in a story. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Pebble Beach. I know obviously uh, you're around that area and get a chance to uh, check it out. We're excited about the U.S. Open. You know, I, there are courses in our rota with the U.S. Open where it feels a little bit bigger and we've been lucky to have a few of those during the Fox window. I mean, you think about Oakmont, of course we got Shinnecock last year. Now we get Pebble beach. Have you heard anything about conditions, anything you can tell us about the way the course might look or play weather wise as we approach that? I mean, obviously a PGA championship in between now and then. Oh yeah. I've been out there a fair amount um, the last few weeks and actually got some eyes on it yesterday because I knew we were going to talk. I mean, this, it looks so pure. It, it is, it is in fantastic shape. Um, it's just been the right combination of, of weather up, up to this point. We, we had kind of a wet winter, um, and now all of a sudden it's gotten warm. So the course is, it's just, it's, it's looking fabulous. Uh, I mean, the rough lines are pretty dramatic. You know, there's, there's six holes out there in particular where they've really narrowed it. I mean, like take 18, anything right of the tree is rough. Now that, that fairway has gotten very skinny. I mean, they're, they're pushing guys right to the edge of the ocean, which will make it exciting. Um, some, some fun changes for the purists out there, you know, in, in 2010, on number the 11th hole, the USGA pushed the fairway all the way to the right, which left no angle to that, that little hourglass green, which is a 45 degree kind of angle from, from the fairway. And so, so this time around, they've pushed the fairway way left. So it, it's a much more just aesthetically pleasing second shot right in the, into that green, and also, well, I think will tempt guys to hit driver more because they'll be rewarded with just a little wedge. And um, so there's some fun tweaks like that. The another big change is down the ninth fairway. You know, to the right of that fairway was always just scrub grass. It was kind of kakuya that was not even watered, so it was it was brown and dry. But we used to we you know when we play the course we'd always try and drive it down there because you'd get a lot of roll on that dry ground and then you have a much better angle into that green. Um, yeah, but it was it was a little it was a little dicey because you didn't know what kind of lie you're going to get. But it was still the right play. Took that took that big gaping bunker out of play and got you all the way down the hill. So the USGA went in and um, a couple months ago they just put down and they resodded the whole thing with actual rough. So it's just the really green thick juicy rough and so they've they've kind of made nine play a lot harder because the pros knew that was that was the better play also um so there there's lots of fine tuning you know since since the last open they've rebuilt four greens um let's see it's 17 14 13 and nine and so there's going to be some new pin placements and more variety on, on how they set those holes up and um also they can reduce the wear and tear because you know, even even though the course is in great shape, they're still poa greens and they still get a little spiked up. So, having more surface area and more pins will, will help those greens in particular. Um, so, it's you know, Pebble's Pebble. It's only playing 35 yards longer than it did 10 years ago. It's it's a petite little course now. Uh, it's but the fairways are really skinny. The rough is really juicy. I mean, it's going to be an old-fashioned 
U.S. Open test where you just absolutely have to drive the ball on play or there's going to be a very high penalty. And, um, you know, the Brando Chamblees of the world are going to love that. I mean, it's really – it's going to be a throwback open on a short golf course that's really tight uh, with brick-hard greens. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a great test. Um, I, you know, I can't wait. So you wrote about Peter Kessler over the last week, and uh, and then we have an Anthony Kim sighting, which, of course, you wrote a story about Anthony Kim I'd say what a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, you're getting all your uh, all your fixes, all your non-playing fixes in uh, the last little bit. I love the Kessler story. Um, it is a very interesting, uh, you know, person and personality to take in. I mean, this is a guy that was the face of Golf Channel for a number of years. He's obviously a very, very uh, well-versed golf historian. I mean, he loves the game. I thought you did a beautiful job of painting that picture, and now he you know, is kind of taken to social media to just kind of chirp about everything from broadcasting to the way golf courses are set up to players. And, uh, and, and something I thought was interesting, you kind of revealed in your story was it was almost like he was taken on a persona in that. Is that, is that really kind of what he revealed to you is that wasn't, that was just something he thought would work? Well, Peter's a complicated guy and he, um, any, any given day, uh, he, I don't think we know what we're going to get out of him on Twitter. That's part of the fun and the intrigue. And um, so I, I think that, you know, that that's what he said. He was trying to play a role of kind of this, this curmudgeon, um, but he certainly took it a little too far in some instances. It's, he's a, a very lively follow if, if you're, if you're on there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I think Peter knows so much about the game. He's almost haunted by that. And as, we all know how how the media in general has evolved, and and the golf media in particular. You know that all the old all the old writers are gone. You know, there's no more there's no more daily newspapers writers on the beat. I mean, when, when I started covering golf in the '90s, every big city newspaper had a golf writer. You know, Orlando, Dallas, Chicago, going down the list. Those guys are all gone. Uh, the, the golf media has contracted dramatically. It's gotten gotten much younger there's a lot more emphasis on social on social media and, and that sort of thing and all these all these trends drive peter crazy you know he's, he's kind of the last purist and um and so he's as the the whole landscape has changed he's kind of remained the same and uh, there's some tension that's built into that and I, I think it comes through in the piece a little bit but it was it was a fun challenge telling his story i mean he's, he's a great talker he's a great storyteller He's a big personality. He's had a he's had a big life. Uh, there's there's been some controversy. There's there's been some, you know, his departure from the Golf Channel was messy, and there was a lot to write about. And um, you know, it's it's in the new magazine. It's obviously on it's on golf.com. So people, some people probably already know this, but I, I kind of wrote it as a as a not not, not as, a, as a playwright. You know, it, it's it's presented as you would a a piece of theater. And that that came out of talking to Peter. You know, he had, he had some great riffs about, you know, you know what I did wasn't journalism. It was it was theater. It was developing characters. It was having a story arc. And he also had a long history of of as being a stage actor growing up. And you know, that was one of his passions. And at one point, you know, he kind of said, I should have been an actor. And um, and so it all kind of came together in my brain as just a fun way to tell his story and trying to kind of capture the the drama of his life and. Uh, it, it was it was an interesting challenge doing it that way. Uh, some readers have loved it. A few just haven't gotten it, and that's okay. Um, try, I always try to do something a little different, and uh, so that, that's that's how the story came about. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say you know he was a storyteller, and and we live in an age, and you mentioned social media and all this stuff. Uh, really, to me, the only person <laughs> that does social media maybe the way they want to do social media in 2019 is Phil Mickelson, which is funny that a 48-year-old is like the best at social media of all the golfers in the world. You know, I feel like we know these guys less than we ever have, even though we have so much access to them. I mean, they don't – a lot of the golfers just don't really present themselves as who they are on these channels. It's very corporate. It's, you know, it's links to charities and it's links to – new golf clubs and, you know, new ventures they're doing, but it's not a lot of themselves out there. And, uh, and to Peter's point, I, I would, I wish we got a little more of that from these guys because the avenues there, I mean, when you look, I always bring up LeBron James when I talk about this, 
is like, I don't know LeBron James. You don't know LeBron James. And none of us probably really know who he is. But when you look at his day-to-day social activity, it sure seems like we have an idea who the guy is. You know, I mean, we can at least believe we know him better than maybe we know another player that doesn't do those types of things. And to me, the golfers really avoid that. At least I think. They, they sure don't seem to really want to invest a lot of time in presenting themselves there. And it's probably a little bit of fear of, what you said about your own social media, Alan, it's like, you know, the more you do it, maybe the more you get ridiculed. So why not just kind of avoid it and, and, and just avoid the, the criticism that may come with something you say? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I wrote this up for coming out of the Masters as, uh, as we do these kind of vignettes look, looking back at the week. And so this is in print somewhere on golf.com. But, um, you know, I recently approached a player who's at the very top of the world rankings about a big golf magazine cover story and really invest the time and, and to get to know him and the space to tell the story in the right way and we'll blow out the photography and it'll be this, this tremendous package, right? And uh, his response was, well, I don't see what's in it for me. You know, I, ha- I have X number of Instagram followers and that number grows every day <laughs> and, you know, I can build my own brand. It's like, well, okay, but the shallow social media posts leaves a lot of golf fans wanting. Right. You know, they want depth. They want... They want, they want something more than that. And, but a lot of these players have the belief that between the, the, the ad campaigns of their corporate partners and their own social media, that's enough. They're getting their story out there. You know, we know it's a very, it's a very curated, sterilized, boring version of their story. Uh, but to them, that's all they need. And it certainly made my job harder, this evolution and, you know, in fairness to this player and others of that generation, they didn't really grow up reading magazines. You know, they, I'm sure they didn't, they didn't run to the mailbox to get their Sports Illustrated or their golf world. You know, golf world's now extinct and, and SI's struggling. Uh, they, don't, they don't value print uh, journalism. They don't understand long-form storytelling. It's just not their frame of reference. Um, and that's unfortunate because there's such a great literary tradition in golf and – the fans out there, they, they love these long, meaty stories. And I know this because that, that's what I try and specialize in. And when I put one out there, it gets a great response. And there's this built-up desire to to go inside these players' worlds in more depth, with more meaning. But they're, they are all about control. They can control their social media. They can control their corporate partners. And there's this feeling like they can't control me or someone in my position. And... Uh, they they just it's like risk avoidance you know what what if I say the wrong thing uh, what if what if I show myself to be a, a total jerk <laughs> it's not worth it to them when the reality is you know if if they're going to open up their life to me I'm not going to look for their, the one moment where they slip up and say something <laughs> right. that's not what it's about I mean um, there's there's this weird kind of fear of oh if I spend an entire day with someone they're going to focus on some ten seconds where I misstated you know, one little thing, and that's just not how it works. But uh, I think that's drilled into them by their agents who are about control and about monetizing everything. And uh, so it's it's a challenging moment for, for people in my position. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, golf fans are a little bummed too, because it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to get the time and the access. And I mean, another player who shall go unnamed, um, you know, I, I wasn't part of the story, but uh, basically, they gave, they gave us an hour, including the photo shoot. Uh, and it's like, how can you write a meaningful story and really get to know someone when you have maybe 20 minutes to talk to them? Because you know, those photos take forever. It's like, uh, it's just a very low ceiling. And I just say no to those stories. And kind of my new my new mantra is, I just want to r- write about people who want me to write about them. Right. Who actually want to open up their life and uh, want to have their story told. And uh, you know, that, that cuts out a lot of people because they're control freaks. But then you can, you know, you get a story like Cameroon where I went to Mexico and I spent two days with him and ate, ate meals at his mom's house and hit balls with him at the club and he drove me around town and I, I met his old friends. And um, it was such quality time and I really, it was so intimate. It was, you know, anybody could have written a good story at that point because the the access and the material was so great. And those are the kind of stories I'm looking for. And, you know, Peter Kessler is not on a lot of golf fans' radar screens, but, uh, you know, he, he was a guy who wanted to tell his story. And, 
and so he, he gave me that kind of time and access and, and honesty and that's that's what I'm looking for the, the, these shallow uh, features that that are just completely stage managed by the agent and you sit in a conference room at a airport Marriott in, in Orlando I mean <laughs> wow shots my... at Orlando I think it happens every podcast I do somebody takes a Florida Orlando shot I mean who wants to write that who wants to read that this is a waste of everybody's time so I'm out but um, yeah it's the golf media has changed rapidly and um, we're all trying to we're all trying to evolve with it and hopefully the players will evolve as well because they're um, things are moving in the wrong direction in, in certain ways, but uh, I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see. We, we hopefully, as you said, ten years from now, we'll uh, we'll fig- figure out a whole new way to tell stories. It won't involve podcasts or keyboards or I don't know what, but we're not there yet. <laughs> It'll be somewhere in Orlando. Alan, I appreciate it. What do you have coming up? Uh, anything fast approaching that you're working on? I mean, I'm assuming something probably around uh, Beth Page as we get nearer and nearer. Well, so you know we're, we are. Our deadlines are farther out. We we just put to bed our U.S. Open preview. I'm now working on our our Open Championship preview, so I'm doing a huge story on Seve Ballesteros. Uh, it's the 40th anniversary of of his first win at, at Lithum and St. Anne's in '79, and it's kind of a looking back at that victory and and trying to understand why why Seve still matters and why his legacy is still so powerful. And then I'm doing another big story where I went to I went to Royal Portrush and talking about the town and the course and, and what that tournament means to Northern Ireland and um, this certain, this very specific political moment. So um, I should be typing those right now, Shane, but you're not letting me. I'm, so, I'm uh, going to let you go. You got to go walk the dog. Alan Shipnuck, yeah. uh, give him a follow. He's one of the best writers on the planet of, especially about our sport. And uh, we're grateful to have him. And I appreciate the time. Uh, always, always nice to have you on. We'll have to do it before the year ends. Yeah, no, it was, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. A big thanks to my man Alan Shipnuck for jumping on and chatting with us. Uh, great follow on Twitter. I know he's saying he's going to scale it back. He's not going to scale it back. He'll continue. Uh, I know the guy. Uh, a big thanks to Titleist, of course, and Team Titleist. Make sure you sign up at Titleist.com. And a big thanks to Robinhood as well. That exclusive web address is clubhouse.robinhood.com for a free stock. Check that out as well. And we'll be back next week with a very special episode of The Clubhouse. Mike Kaiser, as you know, the man that started Bandon Dunes, is on The Clubhouse to chat about Bandon and how it came to pass and looking back on 20 years of success and building more golf courses and all that goes into it. Unbelievable conversation. You will love it. Trust me, uh, Bandon, one of my favorite places on the planet, and uh, I may be there next week playing golf if you're around come say hi i got some koozies in my golf bag always i'll be happy to give them to you thanks so much for listening if you love the podcast do us all a favor rate it review it on itunes it helps us out it bumps us up it makes people see it more gets more views then bigger guest on and on it goes have a great week get out play some golf we will chat next week 